Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This episode is proudly presented by Rock. Anyone who has ever built a web app knows the problem. The first steps are always the same and cost a lot of time. Choosing the right tech stack, setting up the infrastructure and the app, the development of login, user management, notifications, mailing, payment or chat. People like to build things from scratch, but it always takes longer, is quickly annoying and involves unnecessary risk. Not speaking of the money. Fellow CTOs, we should stop developing the same thing over and over again. With ROCK, spelled R-O-Q, you get a simple yet powerful and flexible, customizable Kickstarter application on day one. The Kickstarter application is open source and available via GitHub and you only code your business logic on top of it. All important features such as login, user management, notifications, mailing, chat, payment and many, many more are already integrated via API. Your individual and powerful web application is live faster than ever. The modern tech stack is designed to scale and developers love it. If you want to build a web application faster than ever, just visit rock.tech slash CTO, R-O-Q slash CTO. All listeners of the podcast will get the entire suite for free for the first three months. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today, I would say I have one of the most influential creators I ever had on the podcast. Um, he is a professor these days teaching computer science at Columbia University. And he invented something magic, I would say. Um, and very powerful in the year uh, 1779, <laughs> the year 1979. Um, it's Bjorn Um and he invented the language C++. And C++ is the programming language behind almost everything you can imagine. It's most likely, I don't know, in your car, in your spaceship, in your rocket, in your weapon, in your washing machine, it's everywhere. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic to, to talk to you, Bjorn, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I guess some people will also take notice of the fact that it is in your Java virtual machines and your uh, JavaScript uh, engine. So uh, you can't escape it just by picking another language. Yeah, most likely, most likely the stuff we use here, the browser uh, and everything in the underlying system. I use macOS. There's a lot yeah. C++ involved, um, so it's really everywhere. That's right. Some of the graphics there and, of course, the browser is mostly. Okay, but 
you you look like a normal guy. Um, I once upon a time I had a problem and I needed a tool to help solve it and uh, I built it. That's about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm a practical guy. I'm a systems guy. I'm not really a language uh, geek as such, though I had to learn a lot of that to just to serve my uh, users. Uh, I was working at Bell Labs at the time, so I was doing industrial research. And after decades of that, I went to academia. After academia became a bit stale, I moved to finance for a few years to learn about uh, ultra low latency and uh, high volumes. And uh, now I'm back in academia again. I think that mix of practical and academia is, is actually important for what we're talking about. And of course, I did not finish C++ back in uh, 79. I've been working steadily to keep it a good tool for a lot of people uh, these days, mostly in the ISO committee. Um, and like before your job at Bell Labs, like what is your actual nerd path? How did you get into this fascinating world of, of computer science? Oh, um, actually by mistake. Uh, I wanted to do applied math. And uh, in those days, the word computer wasn't in the Danish word for computer science. It was called deslogie. And uh, so I thought I signed up for, um, for applied math. And well, It turned out that it was computer science, and I encountered, I, I encountered programming and machine architecture and never looked back. And it was probably good because, like many uh, young people, I wasn't quite as good as math as I thought I was. And then you kind of got into the fascinating world of algorithms. Like, What was your, your tool of choice, your tool of choice back then? Oh, um, in, in those days, languages were much simpler. So I, uh, I learned uh, quite a few of them. And uh, I was into microprogramming. Uh, once I needed to run some BCPL. And so I built a, uh, an interpreter for that in microcode so that I could run it. <laughs> so my main tool actually was very close to, to the hardware. I, I financed my uh, master's in Denmark by uh, by writing assembly code. And then I slowly worked my way up through the uh, abstraction layers and in languages as I needed to handle more complex problems. And um, was that Why, why do you, did you want to, 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 to become more, more abstract or to, to build something more, more abstract? I mean, C, C++ is, if you compare it to C, for example, has a lot of concepts that, are, that, that allow a lot of abstraction and it's still very powerful. Um, why did you do that? Um, actually, there was a very concrete problem I wanted to do. I, my PhD was in distributed systems. And when I went to... Um, To Bell Labs, like many young PhDs, I wanted to do something that sort of was a follow-up on what I've done for my PhD. So what 
I did was to start planning to build a distributed system. And uh, for that, I needed two things. I needed something really low level, close to the hardware to do memory managers, process schedulers, device drivers, things like that. But it was also clear to me that building a distributed system, you had to have a higher level. You have to be able to say that a component of the system was over here and the component of the system was over there. So you had to be able to define what a component of the system was. And you had to be able to uh, to define exactly how they communicated because you couldn't just have them poke into a, a bit of uh, memory. Um, then, then you would have to synchronize and they would have to share the memory and all of that. So I needed two things. I needed something really good at low level and something that allowed me to abstract. Um, C was the obvious choice for the low level stuff. I had uh, Dennis Ritchie and Brian Kearney and down the corridor and could go and get uh, the world's best support. And uh, while in Aarhus, where I was studying for my master's, Christian um, Nugor used to come as, uh, as a visiting professor. So every month I uh, got a, uh, to talk to him about programming, object-oriented programming, abstractions, and things like that. And so the obvious thing was to use C and Simula, but you couldn't have both languages because then you have trouble communicating between the languages. So I took the object-oriented concepts, classes, class hierarchies from Simula and put them into C, thereby speeding them up so that you could actually afford to use the abstraction mechanisms. A lot of the languages at the time and today that allows high degrees of abstraction doesn't always also allow you to run efficiently on, uh, on various forms of hardware. And then you realized, okay, I created an, a new language and you publish it, or like, how, how did that evolve? Oh, um, initially I thought I was just building a tool. And then I realized that tool obviously was a language. And then my friends started using it. I actually had real users half a year after I started. And at some point I realized I'd become a, a tool maker and a support person for people building interesting things like simulations of uh, networks to find better uh, algorithms for handling uh, high loads and, and things like that. And the first implementation was quite primitive. And after a couple of years, I realized that I either had to stop uh, this project or I had to improve it. If I stopped it, I let my friends down, uh, couldn't do that. And so I had to make the language better. And so I did. And I have had that kind of dilemma repeatedly over the years. And that's how C++ has grown by, by demands from its users. And you still have that dilemma? I still have that dilemma. I am talking to people. Uh, in, in the industry, in uh, the standards committee about where we should go after C++23, uh, what are the challenges of the future? What are the big picture of 
that we have to fit our uh, improvements into what what's the direction that we should go and what is the future um Basically, the idea is still the same. Really good use for hardware and really good abstraction. And we can do both things better. Um, today, hardware is changing more than ever. Um, it's certainly changing much, much faster and much more interesting ways in the last five, 10 years than it's done the previous couple of decades. So we, we have to stay close to the hardware. And we also, can do better with abstraction. Uh, we got some really good stuff in uh, C20, um, like modules and concepts. Uh, but I outright to see some static reflection. Um, there's also work on a more general model of concurrency that will help both with the abstraction and with the access to interesting hardware. When I say interesting hardware, I mean, the CPU, you can go down to the GPU, uh, you can dig deeper and, uh, and use FPGAs and things like that. Um, that that's very specialized, but somebody has to do it. Um, and uh, so static reflection is a good idea, better modeling of uh, hardware is a good idea. Those are the two things I'm thinking most about. Uh, that and uh, strategies for using C++ that guarantees uh, type safety, memory safety, that kind of stuff. I've uh, been working on that for, for years and we can now do it. Uh, the question is how do you scale it to millions of programmers and uh, multi-million line code bases? Um, what, what, do you, what do you think if you look at other languages such as like JavaScript um, that don't come with type safety, for example, um, by default, uh, or uh, like even even worse, maybe. Um, I, I'm I'm a Ruby fan, and it comes with duck typing. Yeah. Do, 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 do you like this actually, or like do do, do you get inspiration from that as well, um, or or how do you? It's not my. How word. do you look at that? It's not my word. Um, I think people make a mistake when they think programming, coding is one thing. It's very, very different making a web app from making, uh, building the infrastructure for uh, something. Uh, there's a, a sort of a more arty uh, aspect to, to, to uh, the web apps, whereas the infrastructure kind of stuff is engineering. And I think people, doing the two things by and large should be educated differently and they should be using different tools. If, if, if the web app doesn't work too well, well, tough. If uh, the brakes on your car doesn't work well, uh, that mustn't happen. We have to make sure. And uh, we do. I mean, C++ is running on L2 and on Mars where you can't send a repairman. And uh, That's the kind of thing I think about. And I don't have the capacity also to think about how can you best serve uh, people with a light computer science education, sort of everybody writing code the way you do with JavaScript or Python. That's, that's not my world. I don't claim to be good at it. On the other hand, I help them build their stuff. 
they have an infrastructure too, and that's where I get interested. Uh, one of my students built one of the first efficient uh, JavaScript um, engines. Yeah, that's it's nice to see that. Like, or I assume that it's nice to see that um, almost everything that is created with computers these days um, is kind of using your your baseline, right? Yeah, it's it's very nice, but you also have to know what you can do and what you can't do. So, for instance, I uh, know very little about uh, data science or AI, machine learning, um, and uh, that's not usually used done directly in C++. But uh, TensorFlow, which is the basis of essentially all of that, is a C++ program. So they are down close to the hardware, building abstractions that are useful for neural nets and such. Yeah, that, that I'm interested in. Um, I'd like to like go a bit deeper into the, into the why um, and understand a bit more what 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 motivates you to still continue with C plus um, plus. I mean, obviously, like having a lot of applicants is um, I, I think like a a big motivation. Um, but is there anything you think? is worth changing if you look at like other languages or back then if you looked at other languages was there like a fundamental thing that you wanted to change um and you wanted to drive in the first years um or how did that come it, it was not something i wanted to change and uh, it was just something i wanted to build and the tool for building what i wanted didn't exist so i had to build it This low-level plus high-level stuff is, is the fundamental ideas. Good at hardware, uh, good at zero overhead abstraction. That's the foundations of C++. There was lots of languages, uh, dozens, that could do the low-level stuff. Uh, C was just the obvious one for me to choose. There was lots of languages that could do high-level stuff, starting with Simula, the origin of the object-oriented programming stuff. But they were unaffordable. Uh, on on small computers and uh, for, for high-performance uh, computing, and they couldn't touch hardware. So I felt I had to merge those two ideals. And that's where C++ goes, and this is what I try to do better as hardware and applications evolve. When you have more complex systems, you need more abstraction. When you have... Uh, to use hardware very efficiently, as you have to do in a server farm or in a smartwatch, you need something that's good at the low end. And isn't efficiency typically something that um, works against abstraction? Um, I mean, isn't exactly, it somehow... Exactly. It is something that usually works against it, but it doesn't have to. Some of the most efficient stuff comes by having the right abstractions represented in code, and then you can tweak the implementation, or if it's clean enough, the optimizer can understand what's going on and do a good job at it. And um, in C++, what is the key um, concept um, that, that enables that? Uh, it's, it's a class, the user-defined type, and uh, you can have parameterized uh, classes that is uh, generic classes leading to generic algorithms that 
allows you to write code that is widely applicable. But but it is it is a user defined type. It provides an interface between the its users and its implementation details, so that you can optimize behind the interface without affecting the users. And then of course you build types upon types. Um, but since they are very efficient, uh, you, the cost of going through several levels is close to zero. So essentially object-oriented programming. Uh, yes, in a rather modern form. A, a lot of people who talk about object-oriented programming thinks about uh, large class hierarchies with lots of dynamic uh, resolution. C++'s strength is it can resolve a lot of things at compile time. If you can compute the answer before you even start executing, then you can run fast. And in many, many cases, you can, because a lot of the information doesn't change um, dependent on the input data. Uh, and so you want to reduce the dynamic tests, the dynamic checking to things that really depends on input. I assume then C++ is like written in C++ these days and originally it was written in C or? No, 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 no. I bootstrapped um, C++ from C, but the first C++ compiler that was ever shipped was written in C++. It's fascinating. And, uh, some of the compilers, these C++ compilers these days are written in C++. Uh, some that there's yeah I think they all are now. One of the interesting things is that the C compilers now are written in C plus plus because because it's C plus plus abstraction it's better okay. writing complex software like compilers and and that means that um, C plus plus in most cases or a lot of cases is also more efficient than C then. Oh yes. Uh, as I said, we are very good at compile uh, at computing things at compile time. Anybody who has to um, actually do compu unnecessary computations at runtime um, are going to be slower. There's examples of C++ uh, beating Fortran in uh, dense uh, matrix, uh, dense linear algebra which is uh, its domain, and there's cases where C++ does better than C for system programming. I'm not saying that every program in C++ is efficient. That would be absurd, uh, because not everybody uh, needs to optimize to that extent, and it would be a waste of time to spend a lot of time really doing the optimal tuning of a piece of code that doesn't need to. If you have plenty of... Uh, resources and plenty of time to calculate the answer. You just write uh, less tuned code and you can do that too. But if you need to tune things, you can. If you look at, I, I don't know how, how much you are. I mean, most of my listeners are somehow from the web world. Um, yeah. <clears throat> if you look at that world and um, the ideas of like, in a way, it's like decoupling and decoupling and decoupling and decoupling and um, concepts like microservices um, came up. If you, if you look at that, it must feel like a very 
in, inefficient way of working. Is that, or it, what it, do you it, think it, if you it, look at that word? It is very inefficient. Uh, the question is, do you need the efficiency? Uh, if you use microservices, you have an overhead, and uh, you you may have problems with reliability as uh, individual components uh, get changed. It's really hard to um, do error handling and uh, guarantees of correctness in a system where uh, the parts are totally independently uh, created and then put together without a, a common framework. But if you can afford to do that, if your liability requirements, your performance requirements isn't that hard, you can do it. On the other hand, if, if you're interested in, say, either ultimate reliability uh, or in, um, in say, energy performance, uh, then then you get to something else. Uh, the in C++ is one of the languages with the best energy efficiency. So if you're running a, a large server farm, uh, say tens of thousands of uh, processors, uh, then your electricity cost is going to uh, hurt you if you're using an inefficient language. So th there are always trade-offs. Do you want to spend your uh, your money on on building more efficient software, or do you want to spend it on electricity? And um, I can imagine that so sometimes, if you look at the world, um, you you just spot the weak the weaknesses, right? Um, because i mean especially with like virtualization and everything that comes with it um and and then the, the, like the new layers like kubernetes um i think like a lot of the underlying tech is kind of inefficient right and um if if you then um compare that to like bare metal hardware um and like just run a modern program on, on bare metal hardware versus like such a modern stack then it's it's sometimes like way faster um yeah we, we, we're, we're talking about 10 uh 20 70 100 times faster but as i said it depends what your uh what your needs are and what you're willing to pay and what you're willing to pay it for Uh, maybe you don't have the programmers that can write the efficient code. That's, that's one concern. Uh, maybe you have free electricity, uh, that's something. Um, maybe you do not need uh, milli uh, microsecond response times. Maybe the battery on your cell phone or your watch uh, is, is big enough. But I'm interested in the cases where the answers to those questions are no, it's not good enough, and we need to do better. And, and and how involved are you in such cases? Let's take, for example, like robots on Mars or rockets. Like how how involved are you in development of of of, of such? Not very. Um, I've talked to the people that are doing it, and. Uh, so I learn a little bit about it, and they may pick my brains a little bit. But, but mostly it comes through uh, work on in the standards committee and with friends that uh, are building uh, tools. And then um, until half a year ago, 
I, I worked uh, for a bank, a large bank. And, uh, I talked to people and I helped people that was doing ultra low latency uh, trading and uh, communications. And uh, I, when I was an academic last time, uh, now I am again, but last time I, I, I was very proud. I could count, um, I could count microseconds. And I soon learned that, well, that was a bit past. You have to count nanoseconds so that you know what you're doing. So I, I've, I've actually been very close to it on one occasion. And then I write code myself, uh, mostly for myself, just to keep my hand in. And, and what keeps you motivated um, to, to, to keep up and, and to, 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 to stay on and, and produce new versions of C++? Uh, I use those, the applications. I see when people are doing really nice, really cool things, uh, then I get interested. Uh, the scientific applications are, of course, inspiring because science is. Uh, when they found Higgs bosons, I got a little email message saying thanks. So I had a tiny little bit of, uh, of into that. And uh, I, I know the Mars rovers, the Mars uh, helicopter has uh, C++ in it. Uh, that, that's, that's very motivating. And the other thing is that when, when people complain that they have problems, I mean, a lot of people complain about everything and they want a miracle. But when people doing good things are having what I consider unnecessary difficulties of doing something, I, I get inspired to help. And the help is usually trying to, to find better ways of doing it uh, using C++ because there'll be C++ users or it's somebody else's problem. Were you ever worried about things that can be, can be done with, with computers these days or C++ in particular? Um, The problem is that every tool can be misused. Uh, and obviously, C++ being really good at, say, real-time uh, processing complex systems, uh, it's, it's used in, in weapons, as it were, and it, uh, by bad players. It's apparently fairly, uh, fairly popular um, with hackers. And I can't do anything about that. Um, I, I build a tool. I don't control it. I don't have anything to do with the distribution of it. So I feel very sad when I hear that. Then I realize that a hammer uh, is an essential tool, but it's in the hands of the wrong people, a weapon. Um, so, is, uh, so is a screwdriver or a... a, a Pot of water if it's hot. Uh, that is, you, you, you do not control that. So you can be uh, sad and you can maybe think about politics, but I'm not a good politician to try and minimize the damage. But if you if you abstract that a little and, and leave the, 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 the world of, of C++ looking into the future in general, um, what, what worries you? Um, Mostly that it isn't good enough in certain areas. Um, I, I'm not worried uh, about what it's being used for. 
I'm sad when it's misused, but I can't do anything about it. But I am worried when there's unnecessary errors or unnecessary overhead that leads to, to errors. I, I really, as I said, when, when you press the brakes on your car, it really has to work. And if anything gets in the way of that degree of reliability, I, I get worried and I start working. Uh, C++ is much, much better at those things than it was when it started. And, and, and how do you managed the how did you manage the evolution of C++? Um, I think and I talk. I am not a dictator of anything. I don't have anybody I can tell you go and do that. Uh, it is all persuasion. That is, if, if I can uh, outthink or out talk others, then we get uh, and then, then we get improvements. And but, but like more practically, how how do you, um, how do you manage um, that that C plus plus develops to into the right direction? You you, man you, you mentioned a, a standards committee. Um, is yeah. that how you? I um, I'm on the standards committee. I've served there for decades, and in the standards committee, I hang out in the evolution group that discusses where the language is, is going. And I'm part of the direction group, which is a small uh, group of uh, people that has made major contributions over the years uh, that uh, writes a document that suggests which direction we're going to do and, and keeps it updated. So that's the way, uh, the formal ways that it works. But the C++ Standards Committee is a huge, um, organization, uh, very hard to manage. I would say that it isn't managed. Uh, we have had, I don't know, 350, uh, 500 members, and uh, we work on consensus. Uh, we, we don't want any votes that uh, goes uh, 52 versus 48 or something like that. We really prefer 90 uh, to 10. Uh, that, that's deemed consensus. And that way, you don't get as many diversions and confusions. It also delays things. Um, the, the thing that worries me in that context is whether to maintain, how to maintain direction. It's so easy to add little things that doesn't matter, and they just become complexity. We need to work on things that change the way people work, change the way that people think. And that's what I'm trying to, to concentrate on, on getting the committee to concentrate on such things. Um, but yes, we, we have members from two dozen countries at least, and uh, lots of them talk. We have from many, many industries, rather few academics. It's almost all industry. And um are you then the driving force of it or is like is it really like everyone like brings his or her problems and i mean if you look at companies like apple for example um companies sometimes have that genius leader um that that really drives the direction um long term 
um, and it really makes a difference. And, and, and I, I could imagine that with programming languages, um, it, it is similar. If you really want that, if you really want to want to um, improve the way people do programming, can this be? Can those ideas be found in such a large committee? Um, it's hard. We don't have the tools of management. We cannot reward. We cannot punish. Um, and so um, I would say if I'd been a jerk, I would have gotten absolutely nowhere. Uh, you, you have to listen to people. You have to take their worries serious. Uh, sometimes they really are serious, and sometimes uh, you can explain to them that they're focusing in the wrong place. But as I said, it's persuasion. That's all I can do. And uh, trying to, to think further ahead. A lot of those people are there to solve a particular problem. They, they, they are thinking about what their firm or their organization or they personally uh, would like that will be helpful for their next project. And if all you're doing is looking at that, you get chaos because everybody pulls in different directions. Um, by and large, I try not to solve particular problems. I try to provide tools for solving the particular problems. That's really what abstraction is. It's a tool for building things. So instead of building in records like in COBOL uh, linear algebra, like in Fortran, uh, you build the tools for making classes so that you can build the records and you can build the matrices, uh, put the, uh, the tools in the hands of the, the programmers so they can do things that you couldn't imagine. Uh, that's, that's the idea. But uh, for a manager, for an executive, the C++ standards committee will look like a very strange beast. <laughs> and how how do I have to imagine that? Like, do you physically meet with all those people like um, every once in a while, or till till uh, till COVID? Yes, um, we had two hundred and fifty people at the last standards meeting in Prague in two thousand and twenty. We just got out there months before the um, the COVID hit. And uh, it was a great thing. We managed to get C++ 20, which is the, the biggest improvement since uh, 2011, which was the biggest thing since 1998. And uh, we're, we're seeing the results now. It's getting certain kinds of programs that are much easier to write. There's a lot of programs that compile 10 or 20 times faster. They're making significant improvements. Now, with COVID, everything went virtual, meaning. And that doesn't work well. A remote meeting works reasonably well if you have a defined agenda and a coherent plan. It is not good for discussions of direction and of what is important and uh, initial design of, of things that that you you need a whiteboard and a few people around it and then you need a, a bigger meeting and uh, fairly unstructured uh, discussions um, and so that has not worked too well we've slowed down over the uh, COVID the next meeting in Kona in November uh, will be hybrid 
And I fear that we don't really know how to run a hybrid meeting with 100, 200 people. Uh, people uh, who have tried this has found that it isn't all that great. I'm looking forward to when we can actually meet face-to-face -face more often. I teach face-to-face. -face. I've been to meetings face-to-face. Uh, -face. I gave a keynote at the CPP conference. Uh, conference uh, last month in uh, in Denver that was face to face and I got to talk to some of the people involved in all of this but I'm looking forward to that at, at I, can imagine, again. I can imagine like especially if you have so many people and a week of 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 discussion um I imagine it it's like that right then I mean, it gets very hard it, if it's working it's very hard to do But, but imagine if we had met face-to-face -face during COVID. 250 people from all over the world meeting for six days, mostly 16-hour um, days in small closed rooms. We could have had the world's biggest uh, uh, spreader event. So we didn't do that. We didn't <laughs> try. Of the biggest super spreader in the world. <laughs> we, we did not want to go there. And so we didn't. To the best of our knowledge, we haven't spread anything. Um, I was also, I gave a talk in Berlin that was face-to-face -face and I get to talk, got to talk to some people, including some people from the gaming world. It was, uh, it was, it was nice to be able to get out again and discuss yeah. with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big difference, right? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, luckily it got, got less dangerous these days. So, um, <clears throat> but coming back to, to the standards committee and how you, manage evolution um how do you maintain this level of reliability and stability that the, the the language has um i mean in such a committee it's very i imagine it's 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 very dry discussing concepts and yeah. then you have implementation yes um yes. how do you test it all how do you make sure that it's like as good um, on 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 all of the hardware on all those different system as, uh, systems as it was. Anything at this scale uh, is hard. Um, so I have heard guesses of C users being seven million of them now. Uh, I cannot document that number, but that's what I hear from people who claim to be able to prove it. And um, We, we have many organizations. There's three major, uh, four major compilers, really, front-end, uh, GCC, EGG, Microsoft, and Plan. And the compiler writers for those discuss things about how what is the right way of interpreting the standard, where does the standard has to be changed. So basically, it, it, it's... Uh, It's a bit like what you do in uh, high reliability systems. You have uh, have multiple implementations, and then you uh, vote on uh, who's right. Uh, except we have we have four of them here. Uh, that's one way of of getting it in scale. We don't have formal proofs because nobody can do formal proofs at this scale. Um, then we have test suites. There are two of them that people can can run against. 
And of course, the test switch has to be updated and corrected. But again, having more than one is, is, is very useful. And then you have lots of people pouring over the standard text and uh, people running tests of their code on their compilers before they get uh, get get shipped. And then there's many many backend systems uh, like like Intel has their backends, uh, for instance, for their hardware. NVIDIA has backends for their hardware, things like that, specialized, not just the general stuff that you can get in. Also, GCC has a lot of specialized backends. And again, that comes in the hands of, of the users. Um, breaking compilers is not something that happens all that often in the wild. It happens a lot while you're testing. And of course, all of these systems have test suites. Okay. Um, did you ever have a moment when you said, okay, um, evolution is nice, but revolution is nicer. Uh, I want to do it all from scratch and I have like a much better idea of how to do it now. Um, uh, sometimes on a bad day, I think like that. Because maintaining compatibility and maintaining, uh, making sure that all the old code works is really, really hard and constraining. On the other hand, with, a, with billions of lines of code out there, if you make a breaking change, you break uh, something or other that you don't even know what is. Uh, on the other hand, just building a new language, I think about that sometimes. How can't I just do that? And then I realize, one, that it's a 10 year job and a very hard to manage job to build a new language that can be useful at scale. So I can either do something for 7 million people now, not very much, or I can do a lot for hardly any people in 10 years. And then I have some form of feeling of responsibility of uh, you should do something useful, not just uh, go for your own vanity and you have responsibilities to, to people who have trusted you and used your stuff. So I always end up with uh, compatibility and working on, on C++. And um, if you look at C++ these days, what is the, the functionality or the feature um, of the language that you're most proud of still? Um, interestingly enough, it was something that came in uh, first week of it, it's a class with the constructor destructor. So you, uh, when you have a, a class, it defines how you can use some objects, and in particular, it defines how you create the object and how you clean up after it. Uh, and that is the root of a lot of stuff in C++. It's, 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 it's used for... Um, Resource management is called RAII, which is about the most stupid name I ever thought of, but I was busy at the time. Uh, resource acquisition is initialization. Uh, don't, don't ask me to do management, uh, to, to do marketing. Um, but that that is the key to it. Um, uh, of recent features, um, something I had a major hand in something called concepts, 
which defines interfaces to generic code, which we got in C20 after having used it for years in uh, sort of experimental settings. Uh, that's, that's important. I tried to do it in late ages. Neither I nor anybody else could do it under the other constraints of C performance and generality. Uh, the other thing that's coming out that I have a little finger in, but only a little, is something called uh, modules that cleans up the source code and gives us uh, major improvements in compile time speed, compile times. Uh, by major, I mean, say, 7, 10, 20 times faster. That's, that's significant. You know, people will have to drink less coffee because they don't have to wait for the compilations. Which system is very important systems. for developer productivity, right? Exactly. Um, and also development uh, build times uh, can be very unpleasant. and uh, They'll now improve significantly. In, in, in what is different um, in modules if you compare it to like namespaces? Um, namespaces helps also. They're different. Um, modules simply uh, limits dependencies so that you know is dependent on what and once you know that you can uh, simplify a compilation dramatically the include model from c uh, means that you get massive amounts of uh, information given to the compiler and the compiler doesn't know what might have changed uh, and therefore it has to look at it again and again and again And so in a large program, you might have to look at a header file a hundred times and use pre-compiled headers and things like that to cut it down, but it's still a mess. The modules, you know exactly what you have. If you import A followed by import B, it's exactly the same as import B followed by import A. Um, dependencies are not transitive. Uh, those things add up. And Then we get these uh, factor 10 or thereabouts improvements. Which is crazy, right? That you have developed something initially in 1979 and uh, now you still get like factor 10 improvements in, in, in its performance in, in, yes. a, in, in, in a language that already has been known for performance quite a lot. This was, this was compile time component. Yeah, performance. yeah. One of the reasons the header files and the dependencies got out of control was people put more and more into the compiler, into the compile time. And so we had to um, make it more manageable, more affordable, more regular um, at compile time. So we did. I can imagine that also like with adding a lot of macros and stuff like that, um, I, uh, it, I hate it macros. gets very messy. I can now write code without macros, and I do. <laughs> Good. And if you if you um, zoom out a little and look into like other languages that um, got more popular in the last years, let's say Go, for example, or Rust, um, <clears throat> do you sometimes? I think okay, oh, that's, that's that's a good idea, and uh, like also like a slight slightly or an interesting approach to things, um, and you borrow some functionality there or um, or ideas or I I, I I think borrowing directly doesn't seem to work. 
because any individual feature um, fits into a type system, fits into to other uh, other features that works together. You want a sort of a dense network of facilities that that works in combination. So you can't just take something. But um, C++ has some weaknesses in tooling. Um, for instance, uh, I really would like a better packet manager, a fairly standard, at least a standard interface to packet managers. Uh, you, you have things like uh, Basil and Conan, but they're not standard. Um, and that would be better. Uh, one thing you have to remember, these languages are popular. You hear a lot about them. But it actually appears that C++'s user community grows uh, faster than such languages put together. Uh, you, it's easy if you have hardly any users to uh, grow by a higher percentage. Um, growing from 5 million uh, to, say, 7 million is not a dramatically large percentage. Uh, so if you if you uh, also people talk about the new languages you know much more than they talk about older languages so um, measures that basically measure noise uh, like Tobi um, will always overestimate uh, the uh, use of uh, newer things. Yeah, obviously, obviously it's always the, like the new and shiny thing on the other side of the road, which um, like in a lot of phases, um, a lot of uh, moments is identified as, as, as wrong later, right? Yeah, we, we, we know the problems with something like C++. And so everybody can criticize that and complain. We don't know the problems of uh, Rust and Go if they start moving into new domains. A lot of the complexity, a lot of the problems with something like C++ is in the breadth of its use. Um, it, it gets into things that, that other languages haven't gotten to yet. And once they get there, they get some of the problems. Like we worked very hard to get a memory model C++ that fits modern hardware. Um, Rust doesn't have a memory model yet. You'll get it one of these days, probably. Um, there's actually an interesting story there. When when we need so when we needed a, a formal memory model for C++ uh, to standardize uh, the concurrency mechanisms that we have been using for for years, decades, um, we uh, thought, at least I thought, that uh, hey, Java has got a good one. Let's uh, let's take it, and uh, that would be an example of, of learning and taking facilities from another language. It was definitely inspiring. And so it uh, turned out that leaders Intel and IBM came and said, no, you can't do that. Because if you take the Java memory model, uh, you will slow down our JVMs uh, by a factor of two and a half or something like that. In other words, if C++ had the same relatively simple and clean model as Java, uh, all Java would slow down significantly. And uh, I mean, you just don't do such things. That's, that's not right. And so it took uh, two, maybe three years to build a 
memory model for C++ that allowed the very highly tuned and very highly optimized uh, code uh, to actually work uh, as fast as the hardware allowed. And uh, that, of course, is being seriously criticized for being too complex. It's not as clean and simple as the Java one. Yes, that's right. It's actually what allows the Java one to be clean. But, uh, and, and of course, it took a long time people criticized the committee for being too slow. But we had to solve the problem, the real problem. It's, it's, I'd like to sneak into that that committee meeting once, uh, maybe in the future. That <laughs> it sounds. I mean, you, you know the old saying, you don't want to see how sausages are made. But it would be interesting. <laughs> so, um, I, as an outro question, I, I still brought like a little surprise for you. So, um, on my MacBook here, I have an unofficial version of GPP, and it comes with a macro called Time Machine. And as you love macros, um, we, we're going to use it now. And I wrote okay. a little program in, in C, um, and I now run make and um like i instrumented the the macro to bring us back to the year 1979 um, and that was the year when when you were working for bell labs on the first version of c and we now um like i hit make and um run make and and uh we now travel back in time uh to to that particular year and we see your young self working on the first version um, and we observe yourself for a little <laughs> while and you now have the chance to whisper something into young Bjorn's ears. What would it be? I actually give that time machine question to my students. Um, I think you, first of all, you have to go back and talk to Dennis and get him to have a linear syntax and stop uh, okay, the, the, the conversion rules for the building types. Uh, for me, uh, tell me how to do concepts. Uh, I will need it in about 88. Uh, and I knew that I would need something like that. And it, it was very hard to implement or? No, it was very hard to think about. I, I just, um, I, I needed something that had good interfaces, had do things beyond what I could imagine and would run as fast as uh, as, as basic uh, hardware would allow. And nobody, including me, knew how to do it. Now we do. And I actually am sure that even in the earliest days, I would have understood this was important. And it would have simplified the work on C++, uh, maybe not in, in 79, but certainly after 85. Okay, that's and, a good and, answer. And, and, and warn me that this stuff would actually uh, become a major uh, thing. <laughs> that's a good answer. Um, so <clears throat> thank you, Bjarne, for creating C++. And um, thank you for, for being my guest here in the podcast. Um, I will now like close my laptop, close my browser windows, which most likely are like written somewhere somehow in C++ and uh, will walk out the door, which has a, like a lock, which most likely <laughs> also is, is using C++. Quite, quite likely if it's one of those <laughs> smart locks. 
<laughs> so um, that, that that will be hard to get out of my head again. And um, the, the the good thing is that now I can connect it to someone, to, to a person I know on the other side of the world in New York um, that, that built this all. And um, I, I'm really proud uh, that, that you, you, you've been my guest here. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. And remember, it's not just me. It's uh, lots of people who's worked on this. I will. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.